Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, Ben, I got a couple of items here right off the top. First of all, uh, I went out and checked the mail this morning. I got my okay. uh, my copy of The Fine Art of Violence, Chris Rennie's longtime co-main event podcast listener, beloved patron of the co-main event podcast, his new uh, modern art book, art book about MMA. Uh, so it was good to get that. But I also got a coupon, a special coupon okay. from the artist himself, Chris Rennie. Uh, I'm just going to read it here. It says... Have the artist hand deliver your copy of the Fine Art of Violence Volume 3 coupon. And then at the bottom it says, This offer is only valid at the CME 10 year anniversary meetup party. Oh, wow. So, longtime listeners of the show will know last month uh, we celebrated the, the ninth anniversary of the Co Main Event Podcast. Co Main Event Podcast turned nine in mid May. And here Chris Rennie is dropping possibilities on us here that next year in the springtime when the cme turns 10 maybe we ought to have a little meetup me you yeah. all the little co-maniacs out there what do you say you up for it i'm up for it i was really hoping that was going to be one of those like free back rub coupons from chris Rennie, but uh you know maybe there's still time for him maybe we can get him to sweeten the deal just uh send in our our crack negotiator but yeah, that sounds pretty good. Also, we must address what's going on over on your end. For the people watching the, the video version of the CME podcast, for one thing, you seem to be sitting in front of a SpongeBob birthday banner. That's correct. Of some kind. That's correct. Also, due to some kind of sunlight glare, it looks as if God is talking to you right now. That God has singled you out and is addressing you and is about to tell you to go build a boat or something. Yeah, yesterday was my six-year-old's birthday, turned six, uh, middle child. So we had a party for him, pretty into SpongeBob SquarePants at the moment. 
So we got this SpongeBob banner for his birthday. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I recorded the video version of the co-main event podcast in front of this giant SpongeBob SquarePants banner? Uh, and then as soon as I got set up and we started recording here, the, uh, the, the sunlight just started blasting in through the windows. And uh, it's kind of obliterating my whole shit right now. Yeah, over here. You exist in a, a halo of light right now. But you know what? It's, it's just a sacrifice we got to make to enjoy the uh, SpongeBob Happy Birthday banner. I just, any minute now, I feel like it's going to be like, Chad, you have sinned, Chad. And then instructions to build a giant bunker for your family or something. Oh, I mean, you already got one of those. Yeah. What am I saying? I mean, I've been hearing the, the word of the Lord this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> let's not let's not get it twisted. Uh, second thing I wanted to bring up before we dive in here, even though we got a lot of stuff going, Father's Day over the weekend. How was your Father's yes. Day? Yes, <laughs> it was it was quite pleasant. Had some ribs, received some handmade cards. My oldest daughter made me a gift and then lost it, and I'm gonna tell you, did not have a tremendous sense of urgency about finding it. <laughs> And just assured me that it was awesome and that it'll turn up sometime. And I was like, all right, I guess that'll have to be good enough. Yeah. Uh, My daughter went out with my mom on a shopping excursion, got me this shirt that I'm wearing. Very topical video version of the co-main event podcast this week. This shirt I'm wearing at TJ Maxx. Also her first trip to TJ Maxx. And now at all of eight years old, she's obsessed with TJ Maxx. And anytime something comes up around the house where we're like, yeah, we need to, we need to get this or that. She'll be like, you know what? I bet we could find one over at TJ Maxx. You know what? It was going to happen eventually that she discovers that TJ Maxx is like a beautiful chaos. Let's, let's say that you, you know, you don't know what's going on down at TJ Maxx at any given moment. And frankly, neither do they, but every so often it just works out. Reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Because Ben Folks and I are over there party rocking all week with three additional podcasts. If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, you can check out the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, where we spend a whole hour answering questions from the beloved patrons of the CME. We've also got the Friday Power Hour podcast, an additional hour of curated MMA talk which features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings, as well as the newest segment in the co-main event podcast family, $20 I Never Want to See Again, which for me is becoming a very aptly named recurring gambling (laughs) feature on this podcast as we are three weeks into this thing now, folks, and I am fucking terrible at this. Just getting my ass handed to me every single week. I feel bad at this point. I was all set to go out and drop a big bet down on Dustin Poirier at UFC 264 to beat Conor McGregor. But number one, I went out and looked at the gambling machine this past weekend. I saw that the odds aren't actually that great. I believe both Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier are going off at minus 118 uh, for UFC 264, at least the early odds available to us here in Montana. And number two, I feel bad, man. I don't want to bet on Dustin Poirier if that's going to be the 
touch of fucking death, and he's gonna go out there and just get blasted <laughs> immediately in the face by uh, by Conor McGregor and lose this fight just because I put a a small wager down on the guy. I feel like I've got the entire MMA world in my hands here as a result of my just terrible, terrible gambling acumen. It must be said that this past week you you phoned it in a little bit, or. You, you swung for the fences, depending on how you want to look at it, with your just single $20 bet on Dan Ige. Well, it's true. I, I, sp- I was put in a bad position uh, and had to I spread my shit out a little I bit. I had more, to respond it to it. Out. Uh, and I didn't have very much time to put my bets down since we had decided we weren't going to do it. And then you went ahead and did it anyway because you're a degenerate. And then I had to come up with the last minute, didn't want to be the only guy not putting his bets down. So I went out to a. Uh, an establishment I don't normally frequent out there on North Reserve Street here in Missoula. Uh, felt like I needed to make a move in a hurry. And so I thought, you know what? You know what will get me back in the game is if I plunk down all 20 on Dan Ige, uh, you know, minor favorite to beat the Korean zombie, Chan Sung Jung. I'll, t- I'll put this money down. This will get me back in the black. And, of course, everyone who tuned in to watch the fight night event over the weekend finds out that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, I put 10 bucks on the zombie. That cashed. I also had five bucks on Alexei Olenek and Sergei Spivak to go over one and a half rounds. That cashed. The parlay is still my weak area, and yet I cannot give up on it. I'm going to play a parlay every single time we do this until either I die or it hits. And I'm not particularly picky about which one of those it is at this point, but... I turned my $20 this past week into about $28 and 75 cents, something around there. So basically, I'm losing money if we don't do this feature every week. I, I can't afford not to do it. It's just, it's free money for Ben Folks over here. And I'm sorry you have to take the hit. I'm going to start taking my $20 I never want to see again and donate it to Habitat for Humanity. Because that oh, seems like it would bitch. be a better use of my funds than me just uh, giving it to the state of Montana general fund every single goddamn week. Uh, but I'm glad that you are are having some success. So if, if anyone wants to get down with all the fun we're having over on the Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash event and sign up over there. Three handy tiers of patronage available to you. And we really do have a good time. We got music this week from old school CME listener uh, Kyle Kelly Yoner, who also happens to be a drummer of tremendous skill. He's got a solo project out. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drum and synthesizers. It's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more at his website, KyleKY.com, or follow him at KyleKYDrums on Instagram. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, the Korean zombie landed his first takedown since 2000. 12 against Dan Ige on Saturday night and just like an actual zombie with human brains what if there's no stopping him now that he's got a taste for it and in round number two Anderson Silva you old dog stand the fuck up and in round number three there's a heavyweight doubleheader on tap this weekend with Cyril Gaon, Alexander Volkov, Tanner Bozer, and OSP and why does it occasionally feel like these guys aren't even fighting in the same division as guys like Francis Ngannou, Stipe Miocic, and maybe John Jones. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail. 
Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Doreen Elaine Green. So you can all jump on the Google machine right now and figure out who that is. Uh, She writes, is dying and being resuscitated the best base for MMA? Just wanted to take a moment to discuss Matt Brown and what's next for him. Uh, So obviously, Ben, the immortal one, Matt Brown, out here this weekend getting a big win in the UFC uh, over Diego Lima. Uh, Matt Brown, 40 years old. This is going to be, as we progress through this week, CME a big week for the old guys, I think, as we move through this. Uh, and he goes out there and gets the uh, the second-round KO on Diego Lima, snaps the two-fight losing streak, uh, most recently to Carlos Condit in January. Uh, what what would you think here? The immortal Matt Brown, a guy of a certain age, a guy that you and I could probably look at as a peer in terms of age, if not athletic performance. Uh, big win for him, and and you know one that uh, that kicks a can down the road a little bit, I guess here for Matt Brown in terms of the end of his MMA career. Yeah, you know, I, I was wondering how Matt Brown was going to look here, and there were times where it seemed like okay. If he if he can't find his rhythm, if he lets Diego Lima's one of those guys where if you let him get going, then you might have some problems with him. But man, one right hand, all it takes, and he just slept him. Just just put him right to sleep, face down on the mat. And you're just like, it's you keep wondering, like, is one of these nights is Matt Brown gonna show up and you just go, Oh yeah, you look 40. You look like, you know, it's all catching up with you. But man, if you can just throw out one punch like that at any time and uh, put somebody to bed, you could conceivably keep doing this at a certain level of the UFC's current welterweight division kind of indefinitely. Yeah, the power is the last thing to go, and uh, Matt Brown has always had it in spades. Now, didn't he come out here uh, in the aftermath of this thing at the press conference and also perhaps throw his hat in the... uh in the Nate Diaz ring. Is that what I saw here from Matt Brown? It seems like everybody uh, who gets a win here wants to, wants to fight a Diaz brother. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about this, the Diaz brother stuff that's going on right now, as I do whenever I see a headline that's like MMA fighter X would totally accept a fight with one of the Paul brothers. And I just want to be like, Hey, can we just get it out of the way now? Let's all go ahead and write the headlines that say they would all accept that fight. <laughs> Every MMA fighter in the known world would accept that fight. And it's kind of the same for most people right now at around, you know, welterweight or, or in the vicinity where if Nate Diaz has ever fought there, if they are not the current champion, they would take a Nate Diaz fight right now because it still feels like this has some name value. They also feel like it's a winnable fight for them. They all would fight Nate Diaz. Let's just let's assume that every single one of those stories has been written, and then we can move on. Next question this week comes to us from Cameron Chapman, who writes, I don't know if it's COVID-related NUE talking, but I am really digging this PFL season. It's on Thursdays. It doesn't take up my whole life. Nice commentary in the booth. And I like the regular season and playoffs points format. Throw in some carnival boxer versus MMA matchups and oversized novelty checks, and they've got themselves a nice little product there. Uh, Are you learned gentlemen digging it as well? Uh, So we talked about this a little bit, Ben, on the the Power Hour on Friday, that this this past week in the PFL over there at PFL 5, there was a little bit of controversy. Uh, Gleason Tebow 
emerged with a split decision win over Rory McDonald that at least most of the uh, of the pundits who watched and Rory McDonald himself thought was was going to go in favor of Rory McDonald. But Gleason Tebow got the split decision uh, and through a weird quirk of, as Cameron mentions here, the PFL point system and playoff draw, Rory McDonald actually advances to the playoffs of the welterweight draw and and conceivably gets a slightly easier path to the finals here by virtue of losing this fight to Gleason Tebow, who, by the way, did not advance to the welterweight playoffs here. So that's that's a weird quirk in how this whole PFL thing works. And then, of course, this week, uh, PFL 6 coming up. You got Kayla Harrison returning to the cage to fight uh, Cindy Dandois in the women's lightweight draw, as well as Anthony Pettis going to get out there and do this thing all over again uh, in his uh, most recent appearance here in PFL. Lance Palmer also on this card. So some interesting stuff happening. What What's your overall take here about PFL as we continue to move through uh, the, this season, which feels to me like it's getting as much or more attention as any of the PFL's offerings up to this point have gotten. Yeah, and I agree with uh, the take here that it there is something nice about it when you get into a rhythm of, okay, these Thursday night events, they don't take up a ton of time. You can tune into them. It feels like we used to refer to at times uh, some of Bellator's events and even some maybe some of the Strike Force events before that as sort of like low-impact MMA. Like when you get used to the UFC taking up six to eight hours of every Saturday night, it feels like a nice change of pace where you've got like, oh, there's a PFL on, it's Thursday. If you don't have anything going on, you, you click over there, you see what they got. Plus, when you're on like ESPN2 for TV or you're on ESPN+, Plus, you just ha- you're, you're way more visible that way and it's just easier to kind of check in on it. I still think they put too much damn stuff up on the screen, but that is because I am old and uh, that that is a classic old guy thing to complain about. But as we've mentioned before, they've got a good commentary team. The, the broadcast in general is pretty good. And this season seems like it has really clipped along at, at quite a pace. And once you start talking about, you know, who's qualified for the playoffs and how we're going to settle, like the seeding and all that stuff, then I think the, that's when the format really kicks in and starts to become a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, you're going to have some of those quirks where it starts to work against you, like what we were talking about with the some of the weirdness with Roy McDonald's uh, situation right now. Or how, you know, like in that fight, you get past round two and it becomes basically Gleason Tebow is just out there fighting for win money and can't possibly move on in the playoffs. And that kind of stuff takes some getting used to, I think, as a fight fan. But in general, I think it works out more often than not. And it gives you something to to think and talk about. Yeah. And it feels like this year to me with the PFL, you got just enough recognizable names over there Kayla Harrison Anthony Pettis Rory McDonald as we mentioned uh, and also the recent arrival of Clarissa Shields like it's you know all that stuff is gaining going to gain a little bit of interest and then uh, I agree you get people on board uh, to check it out they end up seeing the broadcast which despite the fact that you know your old man complaint of having too much on the screen is a, a professional broadcast with a, one of the better broadcast teams in all of MMA. Really, I think people like what they see, and you got a chance to get people on board at least as casual fans uh, with the PFL. So I think that they're doing good stuff over there. We got to keep it, keep our eye on the professional fighters league. Next question this week comes to us from Lupton Pittman. Ben, I know as a big fan of a uh, of, of Point Break. You're going to know exactly who Lupton Pittman is here. Help me out. He's the, Help me out, Chad. I believe he's the war child. 
Oh, okay. The, the, the guy who who is uh, that's 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 War Child's real name is Lupton Pittman. I believe that's so. What you're saying? I believe so. Yeah. He writes. So the MMA Fortnite is back. Was Ariel Helwani too hot for ESPN? Do the discourse now. Uh, obviously, Ariel put out the the, the much awaited, the long awaited video here this this morning, talking about what the next step is going to be for him uh, after he. Uh, departs ESPN. He's got a, a bunch of new ventures on tap. Uh, YouTube channel that he's firing back up. Spotify exclusive podcasts. Uh, he's going to be doing some stuff for BT Sports and maybe most notably, as we discuss it here on the proper, he's going home, as he put it, to return to MMA fighting. Restarting the MMA hour comes back in August and uh, he'll be back there with Sean Alshadi a former colleague of both of ours on The Athletic who recently crossed the aisle to also return to MMA fighting. Uh, what's your take here on, on Ariel Helwani's post-ESPN moves? And also, I guess, I don't want to say the resurgence because it's not like MMA fighting went anywhere, but it seems like uh, a couple of guys now who you and I know very well have tried it elsewhere and are, are crossing back over to uh, MMAfighting.com. Yeah, well, first of all, I would like to say to Ariel, leave some jobs for everybody else, man. <laughs> He's taking all the jobs. You know, people would complain about, you know, so-and-so group is taking all the jobs. Ariel Helwani is personally taking all the jobs. I, I mean, guy, I don't know that any of those jobs would be available to anyone else, though, for the most part, right? Like, <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. I mean, you got to respect the hustle on a guy who's like, mm, I'm, I'm leaving this one job. I think I will get 12 others simultaneously. Yeah. But you're right. Like it is, it's kind of nice to see because uh, MMA Fighting was always a good website, but now it feels like man, the the glory days of like 2010 or something are, are returning, and that's a good pickup. If you can get Sean Alshadi back, and you can get Ariel Helwani, he's going to come in there. He's going to do a show that's called the MMA Hour that takes at least three to four hours, uh, and people are going to love the hell out of it. Uh, I'm all for it, I, and I also think that maybe. Uh, being away from ESPN is going to be a good thing for Ariel Hawani, but just being back out there where he belongs is a little bit, a little bit further away from the sun. The way that the the influence that the UFC could tend to exert over ESPN in some of those ways. So I think that's a good thing. And the you know, I I saw the the thing that they put up on Twitter, and you hear the music. It's been a long time since I even thought about the MMA Hour music, but as soon as you hear the music, you go, oh shit, yeah. Yeah, they back. I watched that too. That was actually that was a good promo. I thought for uh, yeah. for a Twitter video. Uh, you know, I'm I'm I I'm a guy who has a, a lot of irons in the fire at all times. Like I'm doing all these different stuff, and like when I see Ariel do his video announcing all the stuff he's gonna do, like I kind of found it to be inspiring. He's doing the thing that. Uh, you know, people always say bet on yourself. And it seems like he's, he's doing that here, obviously doing it uh, from a position of being the big stack at the MMA poker table here. He's obviously got uh, some, some political capital and tremendous notoriety and following built up to do that. And like I said before, not a move everybody can make, but like, I don't know, man, I think that he's going to be happier. I think that it's a good move for him to, to have all of these different uh, media platforms, some of which he controls himself and some of which are, you know, just a, as he said, surrounded by people that he likes and that it's going to be a little bit more of a, of like a, a, 
a, a small town atmosphere, I guess. Like he's going to probably have more creative control in some of these endeavors than you would with a big place like ESPN. And so I think it's a it's a great move for him as long as he's comfortable with the finances of the whole thing. And frankly, made me feel a little bit like a slacker. Like I'm out here watching this guy announce his eight different new jobs and I'm standing in my kitchen being like, man, what am I doing? What am I up to today besides taking care of all these goddamn kids? Uh, you know, I, th- I thought it was... Uh, you know, I don't I don't throw the word inspiring around when it comes to the mixed martial arts media very much. But to like see this guy leave ESPN and in some cases kind of forge out on his own to do his own thing in some of these platforms, I thought is inspiring. And it's like good for him as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it's a good array of platforms. And like you mentioned there a little bit and we can both attest to if you are a member of the, the MMA media or maybe just a sports media in general, always a good idea to have some stuff that just you get to control that it's not somebody else that can just snap their fingers and take it away from you and make you make you disappear something that is yours that you get to decide what to do with that is invaluable yeah uh next question this week comes to us from tim barons who writes it's a question i've wanted to ask for a few weeks but came back to my mind after listening to the power hour over the weekend of course he's talking about the CME Patreon Power Hour over at the Patreon page, which comes out every Friday. He writes, with the UFC getting a huge chunk of their money from ESPN and that deal hinging on putting on X number of of events, is it the perfect time for fighters to band together and say, hey, we're not showing up until we get a bigger piece of the pie? I know it's completely outside the realm of possibility to imagine the fighters coming together and agreeing on something, but if the UFC missed just a few events, it seems like it could be a pretty big hit. Uh so as he says, this is something we talked about on Friday. You had a story out on The Athletic uh, about a financial analysis of Endeavor conducted by the Morgan Stanley Bank, which pretty much makes the point that the UFC is one of the most uh, profitable and prized parts of that Endeavor uh, holdings group. And basically because the UFC can continue to turn over these sizable margins and as its business uh, focus moves away from not not away from pay-per-view but as like the money that used to come in from pay-per-view is replaced and in sometimes some ways usurped by these licensing agreements and broadcast agreements that it has with ESPN and other international platforms around the world like things things have changed a little bit for the UFC uh, and one of the things we talked about on that show was the the point that uh, you know the UFC has long alleged that the only fighters who deserve to get paid a lot of money are guys who move tremendous amounts of pay-per-view units, people like Conor McGregor, people like Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar, people of that ilk. Uh, I, I made the point that if you're getting most of your money from ESPN for putting on 42 streaming events a year, then by all rights, the fighters that make those events ha- possible and happen, the fighters that staff out those events should like see some added value in what they bring to the table. If the UFC literally can't put those events on without them, those people uh, should should have more value. Now, of course, the flip side of the coin, as uh, our guy John Nash pointed out on Twitter this past week also, is that the UFC can make the point, hey, man, we're getting this money anyway. It yeah. doesn't matter uh, who staffs these, these fights, so maybe these fighters are actually worth less to us than they were before. Uh, obviously, that's, that's incredibly pragmatic and... Uh, I would like to see the pendulum swing the other way, but uh, one of the, you know Tim makes a good point here that like if we learned anything throughout the pandemic, it's that the UFC can't literally can't uh, abide by a work stoppage or 
it, it can't see a, a pause in the action here. It needed to keep going to get all those events in for, for ESPN. So obviously it's a super complicated question. And even as we sit here, there hasn't really been any, uh, notable move toward unionization or collective bargaining or anything like that among the fighters. So it does remain maybe a pie in the sky idea, but Ben, if you were an MMA fighter, would you look at these, uh, you know, the, the, the picture of Endeavor's financial portfolio coming a bit more clearer. And would you think, man, I need to get a larger slice of this pie, especially because, uh, the thing that is really making the UFC all of its money at this point is the ability to put on a, a quantity events of events and not necessarily quality events. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the point that John Nash made there, I, I think this is exactly what the UFC would say is because we're making this money just for putting on any event instead of even the lowliest fighter on the, the roster being worth more, you are all worth less to us because what that tells you know, the UFC executives is you guys are interchangeable. We make the money by putting any two people we can find in a cage that says UFC on it. And that we put them in gloves that say UFC on it. And boom, they are UFC fighters immediately. And the fact that we're getting this money is guaranteed money to put on these events. And it's a ton of money just means that it doesn't really matter who. At this point, we've built up the brand to a point, and this is certainly what they would tell themselves is like, we have done this job in building up this brand and we did it on purpose so that the brand itself is the thing we are selling. We are not selling you the individual fighters anymore. And that would be like their argument for like, hey, if you guys don't want to do it, you guys want to tell us you're all not fighting on this date, we'll go out and find some other people. And there's somebody out there who, if we came to them and said, hey, guess what? You want to make your UFC debut? You got uh, you know, a couple regional fights under your belt. You want to put on those UFC gloves, sign a contract, come in here, you know, make 10 and 10, 20 and 20, whatever, to come in here and, and fight somebody else who we got off the regional circuit? Sure you would. You can always find somebody like that. And that, I think, would be the UFC's exact approach to it. And it, I mean, the problem is when you're imagining the fighters looking at something like this, First of all, looking at it at all, I, I think that that's not exactly the kind of thing that fighters would gravitate to as like spare time reading. But like, also, who's going to come out of that and go, you know what? We are all being underpaid here and undervalued. Um, and I, as like, you know, the number 30 welterweight on the UFC roster, am going to stand up and say no more. No way. They're, they're not going to think that. They're going to think like, let me keep my head down until I'm champion. And then I can speak up on some of this stuff. Like how many people have we heard that stuff from? And then the only time we hear them talking is after they're out of the UFC. And then they want to talk about it. And by then it's too late. Nobody wants to hear it from them. Then they get written off as like just disgruntled former UFC fighters. And the the window of opportunity where they could have actually made a difference has generally passed. And we've seen that happen over and over again. And yeah. so that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm not super optimistic about uh, the fighters getting together on their own sort of organically. Just, you know, reading the, the spreadsheets, reading the numbers here and coming to the conclusion that we've got to work together. I just don't see them doing that. Yeah. There, there's so many obstacles in the way. Yeah, I think you're right. And and yet, I think that something has to give at some point. Like, I don't know that you can go through another 20 years of, of UFC history uh, and continue to have this imbalance between the company and the workforce in terms of who 
uh, gets to keep all the money, especially if the money continues to to get bigger and bigger. It's just uh, uh, seems like an uh, like an unsustainable situation, despite the fact that it, that I that you're also right that it just seems unthinkable at this point that you would see like a collective action from fighters. It feels like if it if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. And the fact that it yeah. hasn't happened uh, makes it it feel a little bit out there. And so maybe that's. Maybe that's why the the best reasons to hope for any kind of substantive change in this sport might come from the class action lawsuit. They might come from the extension of the Ali Act to MMA, uh, or they might come in the form of like a, a significant challenge to the to the UFC's contract structure in court. Um, but yeah, it does seem like a, a, a huge undertaking to try to uh, organize that that workforce, especially to the point where it could conceivably call for a work stoppage and put the UFC under the gun a little bit uh, when it comes to making 42 events a year for ESPN. And like, I also think that you raise a legitimate concern that it seems like the UFC would probably rather burn the whole thing down than like, than deal with that entity or, or, uh, or, you know, succumb to a, a strike of any kind and that they would just go out and find other fighters to come in and, and uh, compete on those events. I also think that mindset only works up to a point because yeah. you're going to run out of bodies and like you're going to eventually, you know, you get to the point where the the one thing that the Morgan Stanley report worried about that the UFC could become less and less popular over time. I feel like one of the uh, real viable ways that that could happen would be is if the fan base starts to think that you're not putting on the best fights anymore. Like if, if you got a bunch of low level you know, scab fighters out there, a bunch of people who would ordinarily be fighting in smaller organizations and you're passing that off as the the best MMA fighting in the world. Eventually, some people are going to get wise to that. But uh, on the whole, I think you're right. It seems like a tough spot for just about everybody to be in. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think you could argue that to some extent, the loss of popularity has happened in some circles that how many people we heard from have been like, okay, there's just too many events to keep up with and they're not, you know, there's not enough fighters I recognize on those events and so they sort of drift away but then the UFC thinks okay we make it up in other areas like globally by just expanding our reach and that is one of the things that the Morgan Stanley report mentioned too is that they like the UFC because they like the potential for its global appeal and its ability to sign international rights deals all over the place and keep a ton of money rolling in but like you look at events like the one we saw on Saturday where you get on the main card you start to see some people we know but I think of like the 12 fights, 24 fighters on there, I think you had five ranked fighters and, you know, two of them were in the main event. And so it's like you have a lot of those sort of events, especially in between pay-per-views where you've got these fight night events. We might know the headliners and the co-main event, maybe one or two other people on the card. But a lot of that, the rest of it is just feels like filler. And yet the UFC is going, look at ESPN still paying for the filler. So it's still good. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Chan Sung Jung comes in, puts on a fairly convincing performance against Dan Ige in the main event of this UFC Fight Night event on Saturday night from the Apex in Las Vegas, salts away the unanimous decision win. Uh, It's an important fight, I think, not only in the featherweight division, but also for the Korean zombie himself, who came in on the heels of his loss to Brian Ortega back in October of of 2020. He's now three and one in his last four. Seems like he rekindled uh, some of his uh, momentum here in the division with this victory over Danny. Let's let's talk for a second about what this means for the Korean zombie moving forward, and then maybe we can talk about uh, some of the the stylistic changes he appeared to make in this fight, uh, which made this victory possible. What do you what do you see happening for the Korean zombie next, and where does he stand in this featherweight division, uh, where you got a little bit of a log jam at the top of the rankings here, especially as the champion and the number one contender. Um, make their way through this season as coaches on the Ultimate Fighter. What, what what happens next for some of these guys, including Chan Sung Jung, who are knocking on the door but might not be uh, title ready at the moment? Yeah, well, he's in a little bit of a tough spot right there because uh, last I looked, and I don't know if it had been updated yet after this weekend's fights, but the zombie was sitting at number four in the featherweight division in the UFC's rankings. And, you know, Two of the guys above him are Brian Ortega and Yair Rodriguez, who both have fairly recent wins over him. And so, you know, and the other guys, it's you got like Max Holloway and you got Alexander Volkanovsky. And so it, it's tough to say, here's what he could realistically get to move up and be back in that conversation at the very top of the division. And yet you also, the version of the Korean zombie here that fought Dan Ige, you start to see... A, a smarter fighter, like an updated, more experienced version of the guy that he used to be. Because, you know, he always had the good power for featherweight, but he had also sometimes just let himself get sucked into these sort of brawls and like where he's just is going to go ahead and stand there and trade with somebody hoping that he's going to land that one big one. And he had some of those moments against Dan Ige because in the early going, it looked like, you know, Ige's striking is a little crisper. He's a little faster and uh, he's beaten Chanson Jung to the punch a little bit. But then once the zombie figured out, like, hey, I can put this guy down, I can wrestle him. And then once I get him down there, he's having a tough time getting back up on his own and I can control him down there. Once he found that opening, then he knew exactly how he was going to win that fight. And he still, you know, Danny Gay's still a tough guy, still put up a tough fight in there and was, you know, good cornering, I thought, too, by like Eric Nixick and Danny Gay, like telling him before the fifth round, hey, we got to suck it up and do it for pride here at some point. Like, let's go out there and let's try to, to at least like get some back and start thinking about, you know, making yourself a reputation that'll carry into the next fight, even if you don't win this fight. And I, I thought that was interesting, you know, to hear them putting that in his head before he goes out there. But he, he went out there and he had some success again. It was looking like, okay, he might find his way back into this. But the zombie knew just how to shut him down when he had to. And it felt like a really smart fight by him rather than, you know, just a exciting, crazy fight, which we know he's capable of. Yeah, the the way that he made his name in the UFC was essentially to be uh, the wild man brawler whose very nickname evokes this idea that he's just going to keep walking through whatever offense you throw at him and you know make a make a fight out of it no matter what no matter what happens and i mentioned at the top of the show the stat that he hadn't landed a takedown since 2012 and leading up to this fight and it did feel like uh while you still have the same chan sung jung out there 
having these fights and, and in some ways the same skill set, it did feel like he had diversified a little bit and maybe figured some things out, especially perhaps in the wake of that loss to, to Brian Ortega and the realization here, man, it would be real bad to lose to an up and comer like Dan Ige at this point, if you're the Korean zombie. And it seemed like, I don't know if it was the game plan coming in, but at some point he did figure out I'm bigger than this guy. Like I have a size advantage and the wrestling works and I can control the action that way, which is a, a, a pretty significant, uh, you know, departure from what we had seen from, from this guy in the past. And one that I think makes him a more dangerous fighter and makes him a, you know, a tougher matchup for some of the people in this division. If you have a more, uh, experienced veteran Korean zombie who can do the thing that we all know him to do, but can also mix it up on you and put you down on the mat. If he does feel like you're starting to get a little momentum against him, which is, uh, uh, you know, could be a big tool in the toolbox for this guy. If that's the the kind of thing he can do, not only in this fight, but also moving forward. Yeah. And you look at the, maybe the situation is opening up a little bit where you got Max Holloway injured and Yair Rodriguez in that fight. Like we, we don't know exactly if we're going to rebook that one or what it's going to do. But I think that right now, I mean, we mentioned Brian Ortega and Alexander Volkanovsky and it feels like, okay, you're, we're a ways out from that one. And then whoever wins that one, that one has the feeling like it's probably going to be a little bit of a war, don't you think? And it's whoever comes out of that, the winner, is going to need some time. It's not They're not going to turn around and defend the belt again the next month. So you got some time. You get some time to, to work at Featherweight and to try to move yourself up the ranks. Uh, and I don't know. I'll, I'll be interested to see because I think that there are some fun and different kind of matchups that you could find for the Korean Zombie here. Yeah, and then on the other side of the coin for Dan Ige, you know, a little bit more than a year ago, he was riding a six-fight win streak. He had that split decision win over Edson Barbosa, which some people thought should have went the other way, but but turned out in the favor of Dan Ige. He was 14-2 and two overall. Uh, now he's had a couple of uh, tough matchups against Calvin Cater and the Korean Zombie. He got the, the knockout win over Gavin Tucker back in March of this year, but he's just one and two in his last three the good news, I guess, for Dan Ige, uh, despite the fact that I say still with chagrin, came into this fight as a slight favorite uh, and gets <laughs> gets beat by the Korean zombie here. But, the, you know, you're 29 years old. You appear to, to have some formidable skills in this division. And uh, you might be a, a little bit of improved takedown defense and the ability to get up off the mat away from being, uh, you know, all that much more of a dangerous matchup for people at 145 pounds, uh, he still managed to make this fight close as, as we said yeah. a few, few minutes ago. So I don't know, you know, if you're Dan Ige, yeah, you were supposed to win this one and you didn't, and you're probably not feeling great about that. But like, I think you walk away from this, uh, knowing what you need to do in training and the approach that you need to have headed into whatever is next for you, but also sort of feeling like, you know, if, if I make those strides, uh, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of a fight where he finds out where he stands in, in featherweight right now. Um, but there there were enough bright spots there that there's stuff for him to build on, I think. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Jed, have you seen Sage Northcutt lately? I have not. What's going on with him? I'm going to need you to go over to Super Sage Northcutt on Instagram 
and check out my man over there who looks like he ate and bench pressed the old Sage Northcut. Okay, hold Sage on. Northcut is he cannot put his arms down at his sides right now. What like he is, is going on here? Yeah. He is physically incapable of it. He's basically one giant muscle and some veins at this point. Like he is at action figure proportions and has a link in bio for some kind of supplement deal that will presumably get you into that sort of summer bod. Are you fucking kidding me? Look at this man. Yeah, he looks like he's ready for bathing suit season. Uh, okay, number one, we're at the gym here. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he's got a little pump going, right? He's this is probably mid-workout, maybe Listen, post-workout. You're not, you're, you're not going to blame this on pump and good lighting, my man. So Second don't even of all, try it. do you think that this is a, a uh, perfect lighting situation? See, I Like what we saw there. happen with Kung Lee. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Sage Northcutt looks like he done put on 30 pounds of muscle since the last time we saw this man. And, like, I don't know if he can fit through a standard-sized doorway right now. Look at this. This man's out of control. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me. Sage Northcutt. Think, you know what it is? I think it's cables. He must do the stuff with the cables. You sure this isn't a picture of uh, Sage Northcutt's big brother? Is this <laughs> is this a picture of Dwayne Northcutt? Oh, man. Dwayne Northcutt sounds like he stays stuffing people in lockers. You know what I mean? Uh, ben, it didn't dawn on me, I think, until this week how bad it must suck in a certain kind of way to be the lesser of the two Paul brothers. At, okay. at, at least as it pertains to the boxing world. You know, Logan Paul, uh, he might actually be more famous than, than his brother Jake in the in the influencer world. But by virtue of the fact that Jake is perhaps the better, more dedicated boxer. Jake Paul is out here getting to fight Ben Askren and Tyron Woodley. He gets to hand pick his opponents. While meanwhile, poor Logan Paul is out here having to talk about Mike Tyson and Anderson (laughs) Silva. Logan Paul has to fight Floyd Mayweather. That ain't cool, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Right after after Anderson Silva beats Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. over the weekend, Jake Paul basically tweeted, hey, man, congratulations. It would be great to have you on one of my undercards someday where you fight Roy Jones Jr. Are you fucking kidding me? Like now Logan Paul is put in this position where where. He's got to fight these guys who are actually good at boxing, but the Paul brother who's good at boxing gets to fight the the guys who can't box? Are you fucking kidding me? What's going you're on saying, here? You're saying the system's broken? The system is broken. The Paul brother system is broken. Listen, I, I know we like to joke around on this show. I know we like to have a good time, but let's all, let's all agree that we are not going to let Mike Tyson murder one of these Paul boys. Like, let's just, we want to have fun, but we don't want to be foolish, you guys. Yeah, let's maintain some humanity, right? As as much as we think we would enjoy it to see Mike Tyson knock a Paul brother's head clean off his shoulders, I'm telling you, it would feel bad later. The hangover on that one is going to be fierce. So let's just, let's just stop it. Yeah, Logan Paul signs to fight Mike Tyson. He calls up Jake. He's like, Jake, I'm going to fight... 
Mike Tyson, what's going on with you? Jake Paul's like, I'm fighting Harold Howard. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Well, Chad, we got one. MMA has done and got one back, thanks to Anderson Silva. That man went down to Guadalajara, Mexico, fought Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. in a boxing match, and went out there and did some Anderson Silva shit. Gonna gonna be beckoning you in, gesturing wildly, getting you to come in there and throw some punches just so he can crack your back. Anderson Silva wins a split decision in a fight that honestly looked like he should not have been much questioned whether or not he deserved a decision. And we get a little bit of his spect back. How you feeling about this one? Anytime a fighter who is older than I am wins a fight, it is cause for celebration. The 46-year-old man, Anderson Silva, goes out here and gets this victory. God love him, man. God love him. And you know what else I like? I like in MMA how we're going to we'll sit here uh, when Ben Askren gets knocked out by Jake Paul and we'll roll our eyes and be like, these freak show fights are ruining the sanctity of this great sport of ours. And we must put a stop to it immediately. And then Anderson Silva beats Julio Cesar Chavez. And all of a sudden we're we're on, we're jumping up on top of a flaming couch out in the middle of the road <laughs> screaming, what's up now? Right? Like. <laughs> Like, we were out in the streets turning over police cars. That's right. Like we we get one means. win, and all of a sudden, it's on as far as we're concerned. But, like, I don't know. Like, I think there's actually a couple of interesting things that could be said about the, the nature of this matchup and Anderson Silva's win. But first of all, I want to say, like, it's just a good moment for Anderson Silva, man, to get this yeah. win. And not only, like, get a win in a boxing match, but, like, go out there and do all of your Anderson Silva shit where you're, like, standing in the corner being like, yes, yeah. come in here and try to punch me and, like, getting to do, as you know, as we say on this show a lot, getting to do your stuff, getting to do all of his stuff. And then, like, it gets the nice moment of win, uh, uh, in victory here that he was sort of denied on the way out the door in MMA just because he finished up his UFC career on the heels of, of so many consecutive losses. So like it was, it was nice to see Anderson Silva uh, go out there and, and like not only get the win, shock the world, score one for the team. We can light the couch on fire, but also like just have like a feel good moment, man. He deserves it. Yeah, I'll take, get some, get, get the Noguera in his corner. Everybody can come to the party, have a good time. And maybe we got to remind ourselves a little bit like, hey, just because Ben Askren can't go over there and be a boxer doesn't mean that a guy who was always a good MMA striker can't go over there and be a decent boxer, even at his age. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like uh, Anderson Silva had boxed. Prior to this, had had a couple uh, pro bouts. I think the last one was in 2005, so it's not like he had never done it before. He'd also, though, he he predicted these things in a way. He was the one who had been talking about how he wanted to box Roy Jones Jr. for forever. Remember, it was like back 2008, 2009. He was always talking about that back when he was UFC middleweight champ. And Dana White was the one saying, like, no, absolutely not. We're not doing anything like that. And now, 
Fast forward to 2021, it's the hot item on everybody's menu. Everybody wants to have one of these MMA fighter versus a boxer kind of matchups. You got Vitor Belfort talking about how he's going to go over there and fight Oscar De La Hoya. And as we talked about on the Power Hour on Friday, if we get the version of Vitor that knows where the weights are kept, Mm -hmm. kind of feels like a good chance that he might put another win in MMA's column. Kind of seems like he might just beat the absolute hell out of Oscar De La Hoya. And so... You, you, now that these guys have sort of popularized this as a definite thing, and you have a whole bunch of people, I think, who are going, man, now is when if you are an old, aging, but known MMA fighter, former UFC fighter, you want to be free of that UFC contract, because if you are, there was work that you can go and do. I mean, contrast Vitor Belfort with George St. Pierre. George St. Pierre is still under contract to the UFC. They'd, uh, they'd offered him that Oscar De La Hoya fight. He couldn't do it. The UFC wouldn't let him out of his contract, going to basically keep him under that until he dies. And Vitor Belfort, who was out of his UFC contract, he can go ahead and accept that fight. And there's real money at stake in these because for this one, Chavez Jr. missed weight, came in, I believe, four pounds heavy, right? And also classic combat sports world explanation for it was he was he was basically like see what had happened was i thought we were fighting at a different weight class oh right okay like he was like i thought we were fighting at 185 that was anderson silva's weight class in mma and said the fight was at 180 and he's like i I don't know i i found out what weight class it was because i did a google search uh few weeks back and found an espn article that announced the fight said at 180 pounds maybe he just didn't do that same google search showed up four pounds heavy, and his penalty was a fine of $100,000 that went to Anderson Silva. Now, think about how many UFC fighters might have entire careers and never make that much in one fight, even with, like, win bonus. Yeah. This And Anderson Silva just pocketed it because the other guy came in four pounds heavy in a boxing match where that extra four pounds isn't going to mean a ton because you're not, like, out there grappling or anything. I mean— if you are one of those guys who, where you were thinking like, oh, maybe I'll just retire while I still got two fights left on my UFC contract, now is when you start looking at stuff like that and you go, no, you know what? I'm going to fight this thing out and be a free agent just in case, just in case one of these offers lands on my desk because yeah. that is some for real money. Yeah. Uh, Oscar De La Hoya better hope that the version of Vitor Belfort who's been training with Dwayne Northcutt doesn't show up because that <laughs> that could be trouble for him. All right, but we got a few minutes left. Here's a question I wanted to ask you. If some actual striking ass MMA fighters start showing up in these boxing fights and they start if they start winning these things, you know, you don't just have the roster from the uh, 1993 Missouri Tigers wrestling team out here trying to trying to box the Paul brothers. Like if, if guys like Anderson Silva, maybe Vitor Belfort, if they start winning some of these crossover exhibition fights, do you think that that kills these exhibition fights or do you think it makes them even more popular? No, I mean, I I don't think it kills them at all because it makes it so that they become a little less predictable. And you don't, I think if you, if it just felt like the same thing happens every time, I think people will get tired of that. I mean, people may get tired of it anyway. Honestly, like it it could very well turn out that by the end of this year, people are going, you know what? It was cool once or twice, but we've seen enough. We we don't need to keep doing this. And especially if the numbers aren't there, if there's a lot of these fights where people are like, hey, we're kind of interested. We'll talk about it, but we're not actually going to pay for the thing. We're going to find a way to watch it elsewhere. Then I can see how maybe that well dries up. But I don't think 
a little bit of parody is the thing that kills it at all. And I honestly don't think, like, when people are inevitably going to grumble about stuff like this, like you mentioned before, and say, oh, you know, it's bad for the sport or it's these are, like, freak show stuff, it's not serious. I mean, I, when I was working on that story last week and I was talking to Teddy Atlas about it, and he was like, hey, all the old boxing heads, they want me to stand up and be the guy who says this is bad for the sport and this is a bad look and we should stop it. But I don't believe that. I think that, like, this is a different kind of offering. And they're... People can come to it. They know what they're getting when they buy something like this. They know it's a different thing than, you know, two top boxers in their prime going at it. But they can come to this and they can get what they want out of it. And it doesn't necessarily harm their interest in the sport and like the more serious versions of the sport in other places. Like you can just have different offerings for different tastes. Every MMA fan just ripped all the buttons off their shirt. And is swinging it over their head like a helicopter, standing on the table in the VIP, kicking over everybody's drinks. That's what's happening now. Anderson Silva wins one of these things, and all of a sudden, uh, ace of spades champagne all around for everybody. I feel like what you're doing right now is you're telling us that why you're not welcome back at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> and you're telling uh, on yourself. I mean, it can only help these things if either guy could win, right? If yeah. we're not just tuning in. To watch a YouTube personality uh, have have a little cult of personality style party in the boxing ring, I feel like if you actually are tuning in to watch sports, it can only help if 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 there's a chance that either guy could win these fights. That's that's where I'm at. Yeah, and uh, I just want to say again, good for Anderson Silva, man, a beloved figure in the sport of mixed martial arts, who like so many do, like finished up in the cage on a, a period where there was way more pink on the Wikipedia page than green. So, uh, man, good to see him out there uh, whipping that ass and uh, getting the respect from Canelo Alvarez. Like, that's that's the kind of moment Anderson Silva should have, and I hope that, uh, that it means a lot to him because I think it, it meant a lot to a lot of us to see him get that win. Yeah. As, as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and uh, move on from round number two. We're going to get started with round number three right now. couple of heavyweight fights on the docket this weekend for this upcoming UFC Fight Night event. Cyril Gaon going to take on Alexander Volkov in the main event. Your co-main something of a short notice matchup here. Uh, Ovin St. Preux was exposed to was supposed to take on uh, Maxime Grecian in a light heavyweight fight. Uh, Grecian withdrew at visa issues, couldn't get there. So Tanner Bozer. Uh, recently on the heels of his loss to Alir Latifi, going to step in on short notice, moving this thing up to heavyweight. So it's going to be Bozer versus OSP. So heavyweight doubleheader to to hook us in here for this UFC Fight Night event. Uh, I emailed you about this earlier. Like... I don't know exactly what it is about what's happening in the heavyweight division right now, but I look at fights like this, like uh, Gone versus Volkov and and uh, OSP against Tanner Bozer, and and like they are both interesting contender fights. And the winner, especially in the Gone Volkov fight, uh, is going to be on the list somewhere for a guy who could get a title fight sooner rather than later down the road. But for some reason, it just it seems like there is such a gulf 
right now between what's happening with Francis Ngannou and maybe fighting John Jones and Derek Lewis and Stipe Miocic, all that kind of like elite top tier UFC heavyweight division stuff feels to me like it's happening on a different planet than Cyril Gaon versus Alexander Volkov. And I can't, I can't figure out why that is. And I can't figure out if it's a good or a bad sign for a heavyweight division, which has so long hungered for any kind of depth. Yeah. And well, and it seems like one of the problems that we've had for a few different reasons before it was, you know, when we're waiting around for Stipe and DC to do their trilogy, and now it's we're waiting around to see what we're going to do. Is Francis Ngannou going to just do it again with Derek Lewis? Are we going to get John Jones in there? You create this long stretch of time where we don't know really what's happening with the heavyweight belt and like what's happening at the, the top of the division, except we know that guys below a certain threshold like guys who aren't those name brand guys, like either John Jones, Stipe, or, you know, in this case, Derek Lewis, at least for now. If you're anyone else, you are basically just hanging around right now. Like you can, you can climb up there a little bit. You can, you can, obviously, like, like we like to say on this show, better to win than to lose. That, that seems to hold true for all these fights, but you can't tell any one of these guys what you're really fighting for. Uh, other than, you know, to, to maintain your position and maybe step up a little bit. Like, it's hard to say what would get you into that conversation where you are one of those guys who is at least talked about as a potential title contender. And it just feels like no one knows what's going to happen next. And we're all just sort of waiting around. And so you've got all these dudes who are just in a holding pattern, essentially. Yeah. And I was also wondering if it's a lack of gatekeepers or a lack of tweeners, like, you know, the, the departure of, of the big homie Alistair Overeem. And of course, uh, you still got Andre Arlovsky hanging around, but with Overeem moving over to, uh, to go back to kickboxing here, it feels like there's a lack of guys that could do both things. You know what I mean? It feels like there's a lack of guys who could fuck around and fight Francis Ngannou for the championship or go fight Alexander Volkov in a contender fight. So it seems just like there's a real clear line of demarcation right now between the top half of the half of this division and then the guys who are still kind of on the come up here, you know, guys like uh, Rosenstrike, guys like Tybura and and uh, Augusto Sakai and these other, you know, fighters that feel like they comprise it, not a not, not like a second tier or a B class, but definitely guys who have not quite punched their ticket into the, that elite, the elite ranks where you have, you know, Miocic and, and Ngano and, and that for the moment, Lewis. Uh, what's your hype level here, I guess, considering that, you know, with Cyril Gaon is a guy who's, who seems like he has all the potential in the world, but we haven't really seen him uh, vault into that, that upper echelon despite back-to-back wins here over Junior Dos Santo and the biggie boy. Uh, and Alexander Volkov, who like obviously is a, a you know a, a tall guy with a couple of wins over uh, over him and Harris under his belt as well, but like is 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 not a guy that you know we necessarily see jumping up and and contending for the title immediately. What's your hype level here with both of these heavyweight fights? Well, Cyril Gon versus Alexander Volkov is like that strikes me as actually a really good fight. It's a it's a matchup that makes sense for where they both are right now. And just technically, that's an interesting fight that I'm curious to see how it'll go. Like that is actually like seems like it has the ability to be 
one of those rare, like, high-level heavyweight fights, even if it's not at the championship level, or even if it's not, you know, necessarily for number one contender status, but it's still just like two guys who are legit heavyweights who are also really good at fighting. So I, I'm excited about that one. I'm excited to see how it turns out. Um, Tanner Bozer versus OSP, that one feels like, well, we we also have this. We, we also have this going on and, you know, we... It'd be nice to have some backups in case something happens for the main event. Like that's what that one feels like it's doing here. Yeah, only eight fights still for Cyril Gone, which is kind of amazing to think about, considering you know who he's fighting and the the path that he's cutting so far. You know, toward that elite level, even though he's not quite there yet. Uh, and he feels like one of these guys that, like, you know, when he musters the uh, the aggressiveness when he can like push the pace and, and really threaten with his knockout power, like he could really be somebody and be an exciting, uh, exciting force in this division. And I think the question is whether or not he'll do that, whether or not yeah. he'll kind of stand around and let the, the far more experienced uh, Alexander Volkov kind of fight him from a range that, that favors Volkov. So I guess we'll, we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. Uh, and then, yeah, I think Tanner Bozer has that. I got to get this taste out of my mouth feeling right now and we know from from seeing it happen before that can either be a great place or a pretty dangerous place for a for a fighter to be so well, it worked out for him last summer he had a, you know he got off to a, a pretty good role there during the pandemic just turn around and fighting over and over again as much as he possibly could and getting a guy like Ovin St. Prue who's really not a true heavyweight that I feel like favors Tanner Bozer all right let's go ahead and we'll do uh just saying stuff for this week, and then uh, then we'll get out of here. Ben, uh, did you see uh, did you see this tour of Jose Aldo's new house? I did not. It's over there in Florida, just bought a nine bedroom house down oh. there for the for the family. Uh, first of all, I guess I'm just saying, looks like Jose Aldo's doing okay. Okay, that's good. Yeah, this is a, this is a nice place he's got. Second of all, uh, a design strategy that I've never really considered before and but looking at this house made me feel like why don't I have wall-sized pictures of my greatest accomplishments all over my home Jose Aldo's got a one wall in this house is all him uh landing a flying knee just like out there putting his exploits up on the wall I I need a wall-sized portrait of me sitting at my laptop Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I need to put that somewhere in the house. You know what I mean? Or me, me and you talking into microphones. Yeah. Maybe on the ceiling of my bedroom. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. I'm just spitballing here. I'm just or, saying. Or maybe you need to go out there and land a flying knee. That's hey, there you go. But also it's that's the kind of advice that gets me taken down. <laughs> okay. I always gotta be mindful of that. You do. You do have to be aware of the takedown. Uh Chad, I'm just saying. I, I don't want to be the guy who keeps just directing you back to Instagram, which I know you don't even have. But uh, I don't know if you saw this fight on the prelims on Saturday night uh, where Vina Jandaroba gets Kanako Murata in a, a first-round arm bar. It seems like she gets out of it, but then as it, it becomes clear later on, especially in the second round, her, that arm is not okay. 
And she fights through the entire second round with basically a useless arm at her side. Her left arm just couldn't do anything with it. She tried even a couple times, like, where she tries to, like, to shoot in and grab a takedown. But that arm just doesn't work. And it's hard to pull off a takedown when you only have one working arm. But she's still in there doing what she can until the doctor finally comes in between rounds. She just she, a nice little move on her part. The doctor comes in to talk to her. And she tries to just kind of sidestep him. Like, just whoop, like, just go right around him to her corner. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let me look at that arm. And he just, like, grabs it, touches it a little bit, and kind of, like, looks at the ref, and we're done. You know? And she is despondent. You would think, like, hey, your arm is clearly hurt. You can't use it anymore. And you're getting pieced up kind of as a result. You know, maybe this is the best thing. But she really wanted to keep fighting with one arm. And then on Instagram today, she posts this picture of the x-ray of her arm. And, man... That's not what your arm is supposed to look like. It's just like, you know, like the, you know, the the knee bones connected to the thigh bone, like all that kind of shit. The elbow bone, I'm pretty sure, is supposed to be connected to like the upper arm bone. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon here, but what I'm looking at is the the elbow joint kind of just keeps on going back and misses the part where it's supposed to hook up. With, yeah. with with the humorous part of the and man that that looks unpleasant yeah i'm just saying that lady still wanted to keep fighting and that shit is crazy to me i'm just this saying is, this is sort of like a before and after here on the instagram right because you got the picture of the x-ray here where the you're right the arm bone ain't connected to no bone mm-hmm. here just and floating. then you if you click it then it looks like it's back to normal yeah in the second picture mm-hmm. so I hope that's the chronological order of things here. Just popped it right back on in, apparently. Gross. Yep. That's gross. All right. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to uh, listen to us talk about these fights. We'll be over on the Patreon page all week. We got the live chat coming up on Wednesday, Movie Club on Thursday as we continue Nicolas Cage Movie Month. We're going to be watching Leaving Las Vegas this week, so that'll be a pick-me-up for everybody <laughs> who needs the emotional support after their, their MMA bet, bets aren't going so hot. Just uh, maybe watch a guy drink himself to death. Um, that's That seems great. And then, yeah. of course, on Friday, the Power Hour, like we always do as we head into... Another weekend chock full of MMA action. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Again, the the patrons did me wrong, man. I was hoping we were going to watch Adaptation, if only because. And what else better could there be to talk about in Nick Cage Movie Month than a movie in which Nick Cage plays two roles? Come on. Well, this this way we're all going to be able to pour ourselves a stiff one and... uh, and watch Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, we get to appreciate Elizabeth Shue, her fine ass. <laughs>